Spirit is trying to get after here, he's saying like, right now we are in some volatile moments, collectively, individually. We are in the wake of a pandemic that has torn our lives apart. We are in a democracy where we don't know what it actually is right now. Nobody is feeling like their convictions are firmly rooted in what tomorrow should be bringing. And so we're at this place right now where we are collectively, soberly, objectively, and asking, what are the spiritual lessons that we should be deriving from this space to help us navigate through these turbulent times? I was responsible for bringing to you chapter five, which is rewriting your origin story. Truth be told, I didn't know what to say. I mean, honestly, I read the text, like you all read the text. I read the chapter, uh, not once, but thrice. And I kind of walked away going like, I think it means this, probably means that. Don't really know what to do with this. It for sure isn't that. I walked away going like, what do I do at this moment? And so what I did in response, called the ADHD Matt Moberg, but I, I came up with five different sermons. One was on Joseph and the Technicolor Coke, thrown into the pit by his, color, uh, by his brothers, raised to the, the powers of Egypt. That was one sermon option. We bypassed that. Went to Romans, went to Ephesians, went to uh, Mary Magdalene. I went to 10 different courses of sermonic opportunities and bypassed them all to this point at noon today where I called Debbie and I said, hey, have you, you know, had a, a chance to lay your eyes on this text? And she said, uh, no, she's irresponsible. She doesn't care for the community like I do. Is that true? That's what she said. Am I lying? No, I'm not. Debbie got her eyes on the text. And I said, Debbie, I'm just struggling to figure out, like, what is a concise message that could be derived from this text at hand? And uh, after kind of going through it again for Debbie, one of the things that came out of it was this idea of your life, your story. You know what's funny, man? Like, we talk about every week how we don't. <laughs> We talk about every week how, like, why do you give up your Sunday nights? For me, as a parent of young kids, one hour is precious. One hour is not a small thing. How we spend our Sunday nights, our time, like in general, it matters much. Why are you here right now? I can only speak for me and mine. But for me and mine, we're here because we're hoping that when we invest ourselves in this space, we're going to walk out a little bit bigger than we did prior to when we walked in, right? There is something in here that is nutritional. There is something in here that is expansive. There is something in here that's going to push us forward. Is that you too? We're getting into this text tonight, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, where he's talking about rewriting your origin story the things that have happened to you, the things that didn't happen for you, the space of ambiguity where you were left thirsty instead of actually well-fed, all of those spaces in your past. Otis Moss is trying to get it. Unless you know what your origin story is, your proper flooring that's like congruent with reality, you'll never actually know what an appropriate ceiling might be. And you limit yourself. There's this lady in the Gospels, Mark 5 to be exact. Fascinating story. 
when I went through all the different sermonic opportunities that were present in a chapter like this, Debbie and I both landed on her right there. What's her name? Couldn't tell you. Check, check Matthew. He couldn't tell you. Check Luke. He also didn't have much to say. All we know is this woman right here, she's been bleeding for 12 years. Outside of a name, she's identified with her issue. Anybody else in this room like ever been identified by an issue instead of who you are? One month ago. Right now I'm on two years and six months of sobriety as of tonight right now. Please hold your applause till the end. One month ago I met with somebody and we were talking about um, his own flourishment in the midst of a season of frustration. He's trying to figure out how do I be productive in this stage where it's ambiguous, gray, not really clear answers. And I said, hey, listen to me. I don't know what the most productive plan is for you. I don't know the best way for, way, I don't know what it would look like. You know what you need to do, or at least you think you know what you need to do. I'm in your corner through thick and thin. I'll be there through thick and thin. And this guy hemmed, and then he hawed. He said, thank you. And then he said, but. You're also an addict, Matt. And I gotta like, take that with a grain of salt when you say you're gonna be in my corner. Firsthand, I know what it's like to be identified with an issue. Do you know what it's like to be identified with an issue? Not for who you are as Hannah. Not for who you are as Christian. But do you know who you are and yet somebody else had the audacity to see you by your issue instead of your actual identity. Lonely place to be. In the story that Mark 5 tends to offer up, there's a lot of different wild adventures that Jesus takes on. And yet there's this moment where Jesus comes back to his hometown. He's meandering with the folks and all of a sudden he gets caught up by a synagogue leader. A synagogue leader comes to Jesus and says, hey, I got my 12-year-old baby girl dying right now as we speak. Can you please come and be some kind of solution? Don't know what it would look like, but can you try to change the affairs at hand to some kind of positive, fruitful direction? Jesus says, yes, I'll go. Jesus goes, crowd follows. While he is going from where he was to the young girl, 12 years old at hand, there's another woman at hand that's her. The one who we do not know her name but we do know her issues. And instead of being so committed to what the synagogue daughter has in store, this girl is dying on her deathbed right now, Jesus stops in his steps and he says, somebody just touched me, this girl. What I would love to do for you right now is I'd love to open up this text and I want you to actually imaginatively, spiritually, reflectively listen to what the text has to say and just wonder, what is it saying for you right now? This is Mark 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter, my little girl is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him next to... And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There is a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had 
but she wasn't getting any better. Do you guys know what it's like to be at the end of your rope? She wasn't getting any better. Might she, may I ask, had she been feeling any better? We don't know. A lot of us have a lot of different kind of issues that we've been carrying on from day one to day 344, and we might not be actually getting at or better when we seek out the solutions at hand, but we might be feeling better along the way. What we know is this woman right here is not actually getting better, but we don't know if she's actually feeling better. Either way, there's not enough of like a progressive, pragmatic movement happening towards her healing where all we know is she is still bleeding, nothing is being helped, and she is there in the worst of conditions, and it's only growing worse. Next text. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. This is where I want to stop tonight. If I'm reading Otis Moss's book the right way, and please raise your hand if I'm not. A lot of us have heard the, the reports about Jesus. Shoot, many of y'all are here because you've heard the reports about Jesus. There is something in this story. There are nutrients in this field that we have come to believe are beneficial for our lives. That's great. That's good. Glad you're here. Not enough. She had heard the reports that didn't bring her to a place of healing. She had heard the report, she had heard the rumors, she had heard that church might be right for her. She had heard that if she encounters something different, if she detours from a current path, like she might find some life-saving whelm, some balm out there for her. She heard the reports, they hadn't found any healing. But then she came up behind Jesus and she reached out and she touched his garment. It was her thought, her line of thinking, her ideology at that moment was, if I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately, flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Pause. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. There's a girl that Jesus is in pursuit of to try to raise from the dead now at this point who's been alive for 12 years. When scholars try to size up, like, what kind of thing has been happening inside of this woman's body to leave her bleeding for 12 years, what they come to surmise is that at some point in her adolescence, at some point in her puberty, things went awry. Somebody saw a boundary and chose to overstep it. Somebody created a violation that left her in a hard moment. And forever from that moment, she was ostracized. She was, she was told to live outside of society. She was told that any clothes she wears, they are now unclean. Any food she eats, it is now unclean. People couldn't eat or drink after her. People couldn't like, actually associate with you. Touch her, you better go through a ritual cleansing process because you are now unclean. This woman had something happen to her in her childhood that is forever sidelining her in her adulthood ostracized, isolated, alone, abandoned. Nobody sees her, but she sees her. Anybody else in this room feel like you got something from the, your childhood, something that you picked up years ago, decades ago, 
that somehow is still haunting you when you fall asleep at night? Something that your dad did say to you? Something that your dad didn't say to you? A place where you showed up fully to be seen and everybody around you asked you to go back into hiding. Walking around with all these different kinds of internal bleeding, hemorrhaging. That was so fascinating to me. I, I, when I finally researched this text, growing up in my wild imagination, when I heard there's a woman has been bleeding for 12 years straight, I thought like this lady, lady was leading like a, puddles of blood behind her. That's not the case at all. It was all internal bleeding, which speaks to a whole different thing, which means that she was bleeding the whole time and nobody could actually see it. I can't see if you are bleeding right now. I have no idea if you are bleeding right now. And here's the other thing, neither does Jesus. You read this text, Jesus has no idea that there is somebody who is internally bleeding in this moment. If you are hiding it, Nobody can heal it. There's something you picked up, a burden, a valley, something that you did not ask for, but it still got brought in, something that you, that you took on as a child that is haunting you as an adult. Like, it's there, it's there, it's there, it matters. It's not a small thing whatsoever. And nobody can heal what you continue to hide. This lady sneaks up from behind Jesus, and Jesus has no idea until somebody touches the hem of his coat. And he says, hey, something went out from me, and this lady said, for sure something went out from you, changed everything. Who was it? Who touched my garment? Next slide. Everybody around him saying like, everybody's been touching you, what's your point right here? But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, this is not how Jesus typically responds to people in, in pursuit of healing. My gosh, you guys, if, you know, I've said this multiple times where I've had different emotional meltdowns before you where I've said like, when we sit before the scripture and we're sitting together as a community and there's some kind of text that ought to resonate with you that you ought to sit yourself inside of and see what it does for you, this is it right here. Why does Jesus in this particular occasion, doesn't do it typically, why does he in this moment right here, this woman who's been ostracized, isolated, abandoned, told that she's a nobody, valueless, a burden on society, why does he pause while there's a 12-year-old dying to say, daughter. He doesn't turn and say, hey, you good? Are we good? You good now, right? Bleeding, all got clotted up, like you good? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. I didn't heal you. Your faith has healed you. Please be aware of this right now. It's one thing to hear the reports about Jesus. It's one thing to hear that there's good news possible for you. It's another thing for you to take responsibility over your life. This woman was healed, not by Jesus doing some abracadabra move, but by the own self-activation of her own faith. To say that I am somebody, Langston and Hughes, I am somebody, I do matter. I'm not like to be forgotten, I'm not to be pushed aside. I will reach out even if everybody else tells me to go to the side. My story is not done yet. 
And Jesus says, not just are you some woman, not just are you some somebody, you're a part of my family, my community, my tribe. You've been brought back in where everybody else tried to push you out. Daughter, your self-activation has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Another point in John 5, Bill, tell me if I'm wrong, maybe it's John 6, but Jesus approaches a man at the well who's crippled. He's been sitting there for a long time now. And he says, hey, listen, I'm about to heal you. I'm going to make things right for you. But quick question before we get into that work. Do you want to be well? Because there's a lot of settling that we could all do, right? We could feel better but not get better. There's a lot of ways we can live small even if we were called to be big. So I just want to know from you, do you want to be well? Like I said, this is two years for me and six months of sobriety. Not an easy thing for me to take on. For a long time in the early gates when I started to get off and realized that um, I needed to do things differently, I was hoping that at some point somebody would catch me, particularly the cop. I would drive home drinking, hoping that a cop would pull me over. Hoping that somebody would say, it's time for you <laughs> to get better because we're forcing you to. You're not actually coming clean on your own. It was a guttural, honest, sobering moment with my wife that compelled me to go, I need to turn my keys in for myself. If healing is about to happen and it can't be inflicted upon me, it has to be invited by me. It can't be something that is put on me, it has to be embodied by me. It has to be something I pursue. This woman, since she was a child, had been living in the shadows, living in the margins, and then there came this one moment when she stepped into her moment. Gosh, you guys, I could, we talk about this, Debbie, don't we? Maybe we don't, maybe we talk in my head, you and I have a lot of conversations in my head, so maybe they're not real, so tell me what's real and what's fact, what's fiction, please sort me out after the service, not now, because that'd be awkward. It's my birthday week too, don't be rude. But there are these things where it's like we have this moment here in the service where we do this worship thing and we have like the, the sermon, and it's like, um, are you, Maggie, you preached last week, right? And you're beautiful and it's awesome and prophetic and powerful. And I've, all I've heard is rave reviews. We have this moment where the sermon does matter, but it becomes like this performative endeavor. I don't, I'm at that point now. <laughs> I just don't care about the performance. I don't care about the performance. Is it helpful? When you hear this woman's story about somebody who's been on the sidelines, left in the margins, all of a sudden, out of nobody saying, hey, you should come forward for healing, and she chooses it on her own, does that actually matter for you? Does it matter for you? Let me close with this. What time is Debbie? Am I going long? Not, oh my gosh, I'm going, yeah, short, okay. <laughs> Debbie's not comfortable with me being this involved. Um, this is my mom right here. Yeah, go ahead, embrace it. Um, I will tell you that this past weekend, tell me if I'm wrong, but my mom and my dad, this 40 years of marriage, yeah, 40 years of marriage. And I know my mom has shared this with many of you in the past, but I'm going to share it one more time. She didn't grow up with a healthy image of what marriage looked like. 
My mom grew up with an image of what marriage looked like, what an image of what a dad would look like that was cold, abusive, hard, and ugly. Isolating for her. Nobody deserves what mom went through when she was a child. The more I thought about today, the more I'm, all, you know, I already called her saying I was crying because of something else, but <laughs> I'm an emotional state as is, but. There are so many of us who go through lives and we are dealt these, you didn't deserve what you went through. You picked up a limp that you did not deserve. Nothing about your life is reflective of what you are worthy of. My mom is not exempt from that. And yet, she's been married to my dad for 40 years now. She grew up in a house that nobody had family dinners together, and she chose to self-activate and make sure that we always had family dinners together. She grew up in a house where they said, we're going to put TVs in your, in your own room so like, you guys can't actually be together, like you go do your own thing. And she said, there will never be a TV in your room because we're family. You have to, at some point, make the choice. Two years and six months ago for me, my mom for her. Debbie, you brought it up when we were talking about it today. You, said, you asked my dad at one point, how many people have lived in our, in our house, my parents' house? As my mom kicked out of her house, ran away from her house because it was not safe, hospitable, the human flourishing and all of that, she said there's been about 70 people that have lived in my parents' house since that day. It's the choice to say that what had been given to me, I will not pass on to anybody else. That doesn't happen accidentally. That's not something you stumble into. You have to be the woman on the sidelines, 12 years that are bleeding, and say, I will not live another day like this. I will reach out for a change. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And I can tell you that my mom's faith, despite there being an absence of a blueprint of what it might look like to raise five kids at the age of 27, that's insane. Have a marriage that lasts 40 years, that's pretty rare. Despite all of that, I know what matters most. I'm going to be faithful to the God who calls me to the most. I will not live in the margins when I've been called to a moment. If there's anything that I can derive from Otis the third's chapter on rewriting your origins, it is this, is recognizing that the hand that you were dealt, it was never going to be perfect. It was never going to be blemish-free. Wrinkles all around, creases all around. But you are still a child of God. You are highly favored, you are not forgotten, and you are called out of the margins into the moment that you are in. Will you embrace it? Your faith has healed you. You're choosing to believe that you are more than the moment you are in, the conditions that were set for you to thrive inside of. That's who you are. That's what caught Jesus' eye. Pray with me. Christ, you are good. Christ, you are faithful. God, I believe that like you not only see us where we are, but you see us into where we could be. And a lot of times, God, we, we abandon that plan and that purpose and that vision to feel better even if it doesn't mean that we're getting better. 
My prayer, God, over our community here is that you would give us the clarity of our convictions to see where you are inviting us into. That we would move beyond the parameters of what feels good into your heart where we know what is good. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You know, I got to say one thing. Um, Friday afternoon, mom, was it Thursday? You don't know what I'm talking about even. So why would I say just an open-ended question like, was it Thursday? My kids had their first tryout for soccer teams. When I told you I was a little bit teary and emotional today, that was a causal effect. That was a tie to that. And what had happened was they showed up for Minneapolis United soccer trials. They were all gun ho and excited about what could be. And the coaches said, parents, you know, you're excited at what could be. Like, let's go. Stay on the sidelines. Your kids are going to be out there. You guys got to stay on the sidelines. And so we sit there. And I met with Debbie the next morning. And I said, I was standing there watching my sweet Sawyer, who's never played soccer before. God bless his heart. He's going out for that team, though doesn't know anybody, and everything inside of me wants to intervene and protect him and say, like, hey, I got you, man. This kid's name is Joseph or something. doesn't matter. what You're the best. Doesn't, you don't even know his name. Don't worry about it. But all we could do was sit on the sidelines and watch our kids struggle and try to make sense of their lives and find the next chapter in their stories. And that is a window for me when I think about the lives that we live. God loves you. Each of you are carriers of the Imago Dei, the image of God. You are children of God. You are highly favored, loved, liked, everything in between. At the same time, the approval of heaven doesn't exempt you from the attacks of hell. Just because you are loved doesn't mean you won't experience some pain, some discomfort, some trials, some tribulations. Call it what you will. Can you maintain that sense of identity when the winds of storms, of trials, of somebody saying that you aren't what you thought you were come against you? Can you stay rooted in who you are? That is the challenge. That is why we gather in this space every Sunday night. There's not a lot of spaces you gather every Sunday night, but you gather in this space to remind yourself once again that who you are is more important than what you do. Stay rooted in who you are. Gosh, if there's one message that I will die on saying again and again, it's that one right there. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Don't forget who you are. This is the one moment where you come in and you wipe the lens clear and you say, this is who I am. Everybody outside of this space might say 10,000 different things about who I am and what I'm about and where I can go and where I can't go. Does not matter in this space. In this place, you sober up. You are a child of God. Doesn't matter what coaches, employers, or peers might say about you. This space, you remember your true identity. No mistake about it. That's why we gather in this, in this time. This is why we do it ritualistically every Sunday night. Because it's too important for us to forget. Friends, will you close your eyes? Hold your hands out and receive these words from the heart of God. No matter who you are or what you've done, 
who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed. Know that you as is right now, period, you are a child of God, fully loved, fully celebrated, fully seen. As is right now, you are a child of God. And as the beloved child of God, you ought to know there will always be a seat here for you at the table. Go in peace. We'll see you next Sunday night.